Hey, good morning, Sycamore View. Great to see all of you who are here in person. Grateful for all of you joining us online today. Happy February. I hope you made it through this past week. I just need to see a show of hands. How many of you grew up and at any point you played the game MASH? Anybody? If you go ahead and put that up on the screen. Some of us played MASH. Some of us who grew up in the South, you played MARSH. Now, the game of MASH is eventually you would discover one day, are you going to live in a mansion, apartment, shack, or house? Those of us who grew up in Texas in the South, we played Marsh because there was a ranch that was also an option. People from New York City, Chicago, you probably didn't play Marsh. Ranch wasn't an option. You played MASH. So what you would do is you have all these categories. And you know, who are you going to marry? How many children are you going to have? How much money are you going to make? What's your job? Your car? And then you would do this circle and count the lines. And then basically it would let you... It's like 98% accurate how the, all of your life is going to turn out, right? As you can see on the screen, if you can make out any of these words, this was a 1997 edition that I just found online. Apparently, this person did not marry Justin Timberlake. They do make a million dollars a year as a bus driver living in a shack with 15 children. I'm telling you, it's accurate. Now, maybe you played Master Marsh growing up with your friends, but this is not a game that adults, like before a Super Bowl party, like you don't go back and play MASH just to see how your life turned out. This is a game you would play to kind of dream about the future, not a game you would play to reflect back on your life. It's how's everything going to turn out one day. So some of the categories that we didn't play with whenever we would play the game MASH or in Texas and when we would play MARSH is you wouldn't have a category that would say something like, what addictions will I have when I'm an adult? Alcohol, drugs, prescription drugs, pornography... You didn't have anything that would say, what age are you going to get cancer? 35, 55, 75? And under marriage, it didn't have something that would say, how long will that marriage last? Five years, 15 years, until the day you die? Because it's one thing to dream about what life will be, but then it's another thing when you actually experience life as it is. So I want you in Matthew chapter 19 today. In Matthew chapter 19, and right now I just want to read two verses to you. And there are two verses in which Pharisees are trying to test Jesus, and then Jesus responds. And here's how it goes. Matthew 19, verse 3 and 4. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. So throughout this day, as we talk about Matthew 19, I don't want you to sense that the Pharisees are coming for just any conversation. They're trying to test Jesus, trying to catch Jesus. And they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus responded with this. Responded with this. Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. They came asking about divorce. Jesus responded by talking about marriage. So today I want to talk about marriage, divorce, remarriage. These are experiences that have touched all of us, either directly or indirectly. You have been blessed or impacted in some way by marriages in your life, and all of us have been impacted in some way by divorce. These are two experiences that have played a part in shaping and forming all of us. Now, in first century culture, singleness and celibacy wasn't much, much of an option. In fact, there were statements in, Jewish, uh, in the tradition that would go something like this. If you were a Jewish man and you do not have a wife, you were not a man. Now, hopefully, we are still doing better, not just as a culture, especially as a church, and giving space for single people. That being married is not the crowning achievement of what it means to be a follower of Jesus or to be a person in life, right? Hopefully we're doing better. 
Now today, as I know, I'm, I'm talking about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And just those topics alone, I mean, I remember one preacher, he challenged uh, others saying, whenever you preach on topics like this, whenever you preach on marriage and divorce, one of the risks is this, is that the wrong people will hear the wrong things. Meaning that there may be people who hear me talk about this, who have been divorced, and you may hear something that causes more guilt and shame to come upon you, and, and that it, it's not my intentions at all today. And there may be someone in a marriage in which it's barely hanging on by a thread, and you may take hold of something that you feel like gives you permission today just to go ahead and end it. And there may be those who are married in good marriages or single people in the room or students and teenagers who you hear what I'm talking about today and you've already decided, man, I don't know if there's anything about this that impacts you, but we're a family and these are things that, these are experiences that have shaped us all. So I'm just asking you, inviting you to lean in a little bit. You can't have a marriage and you can't have divorce without weddings. Without wedding or some kind of ceremony, there's no marriage. And without marriage, there's no divorce. I've had a chance in my life to, I don't know how, I don't even count how many weddings I've done. In over 20 years of ministry, I've done a lot of weddings. And there are two stories I've told in multiple weddings, and I've told these two stories from this stage on a Sunday morning in front of you before. One story occasionally I share in a wedding, and I try to do this briefly in a wedding. I don't, because it's, it's more of a, a lighthearted story. Sometimes I'll share this story when there's a lot of anxiety in the wedding or, or the bride is super nervous to kind of help people just have a laugh and, and, and kind of, you know, just uh, take a deep breath, and bring some peace and, and joy in the room. Well, I, I went skydiving three weeks after True was born. I had planned this for a long time with friends. We were living in Houston at the time. Went to, only time I've ever been skydiving, and I did a tandem jump, meaning there was a guy hooked onto my back who was a pro. So we're going up in a plane. It's loud. The engine's roaring, and the guy leans over my shoulder, and he says, is this the first time you've ever been skydiving? And I was like, yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's my first time we go skydiving. He said, it's my first time too. And there are, there are times to make jokes, and there are times where you just don't joke, all right? It, it wasn't really funny to me in the moment, okay? Uh, and he said, just joking, all right? I've done over 10,000 jumps. He said, here's what I want you to do, though. When, we, when you go home, I want you to pull up YouTube, and I want you, you can go watch my wedding. So I did. Everything about my experience was great. I went home. I, I pulled it up on YouTube. I watched this guy's wedding where this guy and his bride were on an airplane going up in the air, and the pastor was in front of them and had them reciting their vows, holding hands, you know, do you take this woman to be your wife? Do you take this man to be your husband? And when, he asked, or when, when the pastor asked, do you take this man to be your husband? She said, yes, but if you want me, you have to come and get me. She jumps out of the plane. And then he jumped out after her. And there's this video crew falling with them and going 150, falling at 150 miles per hour. They kiss in the air and they exchange rings as they're falling in the air. And then when they land on the ground, there's a pastor on the ground who pronounces them husband and wife. That was their wedding. So every once in a while, I'll share this in a wedding and I'm like, look, here's the deal. We can stay right here in this room or have a helicopter on the other side of the hill. They can come in, take us up and we can do this a totally different way. Now, Kathy and Donna, two employees here at the church, like they've heard me tell this story enough that when they renew their vows, this is how they have decided to do it. <laughs> Dewey and Doug are going up with them. They're jumping out of the plane. I will be on the ground to remind them of their marital vows. And there is something about marriage. There's something about marriage that is adventurous and courageous and sometimes it feels like you're falling and you land safely. Like there's something about marriage that does, it takes risk. And there's another story I sometimes tell in just the last few years. 
And I've told you this before. There was a Jewish rabbi I met with at Blue Plate, which, rest in peace, Blue Plate's not here anymore. I was meeting with him, and I was talking through the Ten Commandments. I said, can I just share how I interpret and how I plan to preach the Ten Commandments? Because the way I've thought about the Ten Commandments for years is that the first three are vertical. The first three of the Ten Commandments are directed to God. The last six are horizontal. They are about human relationships. And for years I've interpreted day four, the, or, or uh, the fourth command, the Sabbath is the one that holds it all together. The Sabbath, the need for resistance, the need for us to say no to some things in life, that is the command that keeps us connected to God vertically and to people horizontally. And this Jewish rabbi sitting across the table from me said, hey, I'm not going to disagree with you. All right, that's pretty good theology. But he said that's not how we teach it. We teach that it's actually the fifth command that holds it all together. That the first four are directed to God, the last five are about human relationships, but it's actually the command, honor your father and mother. That is the command that holds the first four and the last five together, and it's for this reason. When the father and mother live out life with God, they should make honoring them really easy. And when the mother and father are living out the marital covenant the way God intends, they are the ones who open up the entire world for their kids to see what life with God is like. In other words, marriage is not just for two people to learn to love each other for the rest of their lives. Marriage is a blessing for the entire world. But it's not always that way. So I want to read a few verses from Matthew 19, and then I want to go back and I want to explain a few things to you, all right? So Matthew chapter 19, let's go back to verse 3, and here's how it goes. Some Pharisees came to him, came to Jesus to test him. So if you're making notes, you're underlying things, I, I want you to see, this isn't just a conversation. They're coming trying to trap Jesus, to test him, they're challenging him. And they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command? If you're making notes, I just want you to note that. This is what they say. They say Moses command... Did Moses command that a man gave his wife, give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. So if you're making notes, underline it. Your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I'll tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now let me go back and point out a few things to you. In verse 3 and 4, they come to test Jesus. And their question isn't like, is divorce right or wrong? That's not the question they're bringing before Jesus. What they want to know is, when can somebody divorce their spouse? In their culture, really it was husbands who could divorce wives. Rarely were wives able to divorce husbands. So the question is, when can a husband divorce a wife? That's the question. They want to know, is Jesus easy on divorce or not? Like, how easy is it? For some people, it's black and white. There's only one thing you can, you can divorce someone over. So they're testing Jesus to see how he'll respond in this moment. They come asking Jesus about divorce. They get a few verses in response in which Jesus talks about marriage. Jesus doesn't even address their question about divorce. 
Jesus takes them all the way back to Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2, where he quotes Genesis 1 verse 27, and he quotes the very end of Genesis chapter 2 verse 23 and 24, where Jesus is just reminding them from the very beginning, this was God's original intent. That God created the male and female. And then that God's going to knit them together, like glue them together as they leave father and mother, and, and they're going to become one. So what has become one, we should never separate. Sometimes we go to places like Matthew ch or chapter 19, and we want to know, what does Jesus have to say about divorce? But you can't understand what Jesus has to say about divorce if you don't pay attention to how Jesus first talks about, and, and we get to understand how Jesus talks about marriage. But then they follow that up. Right, because they want to know about divorce. So Jesus starts quoting Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. They didn't want Genesis. They wanted Deuteronomy. So for the Pharisees, all they cared about in this moment is how do you interpret Deuteronomy chapter 24, which we'll get to in just a moment. So when they come asking about divorce, they want to know, when it comes to Deuteronomy 24, how do you interpret that? So they start poking a little deeper. Now, follow me here, all right? There were two schools of thinking in Jewish thought. And the two schools is one was Shammai. And I have this on the screen, and it's actually an I, not an L, all right? Shammai, which was a more conservative, traditional way of thinking. So for the Shema teaching, for those who fell under that form of thought, divorce was only through sexual immorality. And then you had the thought of Hamel. And Hamel was much more open, much more liberal. And I'm, I'm not trying to be funny at all. You can read this kind of stuff. For them, a man could divorce his wife if she flirted with another man. A man could divorce his wife if she didn't clean the house the way he thought she should clean the house. A man could divorce his wife if a woman burnt dinner at night. A man could divorce his wife for almost anything. Stay with me here, all right? I want to keep that same image right there on the screen. Matthew chapter 19 verse 1, and this, uh, this is not on the screen. Matthew chapter 19 verse 1 tells you that this encounter between the Pharisees and Jesus happened in Judea beyond the Jordan, which may mean nothing to, uh, to almost anybody. Sometimes we skip over locations and geography. It happened in Judea beyond the Jordan, which was the area of Perea. This is where Herod Antipas ruled. Herod Antipas had a wife, but he also had a brother who had a wife. And he fell in love with his brother's wife. So Herod decided to get rid of his wife and then try to convince his brother's wife to fall in love with him, which happened, and then he married his brother's wife. And this is where you can insert your own Arkansas joke. I've done, I've done enough of those over the years. I'm not going to do one right here. All right. He ends up taking his sister-in-law, convincing her to marry him. And this is the area where John the Baptist challenged Herod and said, you can't do it. This is what ends up getting John the Baptist killed. As he begins challenging Herod on what he has done to get rid of his wife so that he can marry another woman, his sister-in-law, and take her as his own wife. So what form of thought do you think John the Baptist fell under? So what they're asking Jesus is, and they knew Jesus' popularity was growing. And this is a question that based on how Jesus answered, he could either gain or lose favor with a lot of men in society. Was he going to come down on them hard? Or was he going to give them an easy out? Right? So this is how Jesus challenged him. Then you get Deuteronomy chapter 24, four verses. And a couple of times in the Gospels when Jesus is challenged on divorce... 
This is what people want to know. Like, how do you think about Deuteronomy chapter 24, which says this? If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Here's one thing you will notice. Moses never commanded that this be done. They come to Jesus saying, Moses commanded. Moses never commanded. This was a culture where husbands could divorce wives in Deuteronomy. Wives didn't get to divorce husbands. And there's no command. It's only extended a description of the common state of affairs among the people in Deuteronomy. This is how they were already practicing things in this way. And it's because of hardness of heart. And Jesus makes this very clear. It was because of hardness of heart. It was a heart that was barricaded against the love of God or a heart that was barricaded against a spouse or a heart that had become hard just toward life and toward people. And is this not what destroys and tears down every relationship, every marriage? It's when a heart becomes hard. It's when a heart is barricaded toward God or a heart that is barricaded toward a spouse or to life or to the world. I don't have time to make this argument in depth, but Deuteronomy chapter 24 is actually trying to protect women, not restrict women. Socioeconomic assumption assumed that divorced women would be forced to marry again because they would be left with nothing. Therefore, they could be treated as property and almost traded around. And then the first husband could take her back, not because he loved her, but because of the, how he might be able to abuse her and protect her rights to remarriage and from both personal slander and property. So the Pharisees came to Jesus almost viewing Deuteronomy 24 as a positive thing. When Jesus lets them know Deuteronomy 24 is a concession because of hardness of heart, but it was never God's original intent. I hope that we will always be a church that honors and holds up the marriage covenant and invites people to honor it and that we will be a church through prayer and action that we will fight for healthy marriages in the life of this church. And when the marriage covenant has been violated by adultery or forms of abuse and neglect, that there is an option. It's an option that breaks the heart of God, but it is an option. So religious and secular, sociologists, psychologists, and other researchers all confirm that divorce is not a good thing. And people who divorce tend to divorce again. You know that you know most of the, you know stats on this kind of stuff, right? The children of those who divorce are st statistically more likely to get divorced, and the trauma can create all kinds of challenges in life. Malachi chapter two verse six is where you read that God hates divorce, and God hates divorce because God knows the ripples of heartache, disruption, and spiritual and emotional wreckage that can follow. Divorce always involves sin, always. But here's what I want people to hear today. Divorce is never called the unforgivable sin. And divorce does not have to be the end 
of your spiritual journey. God forgives failures and God heals wounds. And if we serve the one called Jesus, who is able and willing to heal people of leprosy and people who are deaf and mute and social diseases, what makes you think God's not fully involved in healing the brokenness from divorce and relationships in life? often go back to the story Philip Yancey told in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, one of the top three books I've read in my life. And he tells about a Harvard biologist who was doing research on ants. And sometimes you may question research, like, are our tax dollars really going to like, study ants or not? He was studying ants. And one thing he discovered is that when an ant would die, it would take a few days before any of the other ants noticed that that ant was dead. And what the biologists discovered is there was actually a smell from decaying that would come off of the ant that would let the other ants know they had one of their own who had died and then they would pick it up and carry it out to the ant cemetery. So this biologist discovered that there was a specific form of acid that was the smell that would come out of dead ants. So he, he found this acid Create, kind of created it, and then what he did is he would take like little pieces of paper, put the acid on it, drop it among the ants, and the ants would pick it up and would carry it out to the ant cemetery because it reflected death. And then he decided to take his experiment a little further. He was going to put the acid on ants that were alive. And guess what all the other ants did? They picked it up with his whole body and moving around and would carry it out to the cemetery and that ant would come back into the community and they would carry it out again until the smell was completely off. And in a way it feels like that's what the church has done to some divorced people, people who have been divorced for years. Roman Catholics often teach that divorce isn't allowed and that divorce and remarriage can exclude one from Holy Communion. And I'm not just going to take shots at Roman Catholic Church because churches of Christ and Baptists and evangelicals have often had teaching in our practice that has often made conversations like this heaven or hell issues that has loaded people with guilt and shame. And some, especially those who are listening to me right now from grace-oriented cultures and faith traditions, like you may just not get some of the battles that were fought in churches for years over like what do we do with people who've been divorced so maybe we don't just kick them out of churches we just put them on the fringe we, there are so many churches who haven't known what to do and sometimes church hurt can be some of the hardest forms of hurt so about 20 years 20 years ago this church asked the elders of this church to study three issues one of them being divorce and remarriage and I'm not going to read the whole 12, it would take me 12, 15 minutes to read you the position paper, a statement that came out by the leaders of this church. You can find it on our website. I just want to read you a few things that came from that study. The union between a man and a woman in marriage images the unity with God. And as divine image bears, marriage is a sacred relationship that participates in God's own life. Divorce, therefore, was never intended by God. He hates divorce. Divorce is something that God grieves. Nevertheless, due to the hardness of human heart, God permits divorce in some circumstances. And God permits divorce when the marriage covenant has been violated. Recognizing the difficulty of such decisions 
and the diverse converse, uh, circumstances in which people find themselves, the shepherds of this church will neither exclude people from the fellowship nor relegate them to some kind of secondary status within the community who, after honestly seeking the will of God, decide to remarry. So let me speak just a few words over you right now. To the people in this church who have been divorced, I just want you to know you have full citizenship in the kingdom of God. And we are so glad you are a part of this church. And to children, family members, and friends who have been scarred by divorce, we pray for your healing. And we ask God to give you a vision about marriage for others and maybe yourself, but a vision of a marriage that, God, that, God's, that, that portrays God's original intent. And I pray for people who have seen marriage at its worst, that you will not get, give up on the idea of marriage, but that you will see it for what God intended it to be. And for those who have divorced and have chosen to marry again, we believe that because God said it is not good for humans to be alone, that God does not wish to deny all divorced people the joy of a genuine marriage. God's purpose is to liberate people to be what God has always intended them to be. And for those who are married in this space today, we want you to know that we want to fight for your marriage for the rest of your life. So over the next three weeks, we're going to just jump into a short little series called Rewind, where we're going to look back on three conversations today, divorce, or marriage and divorce and, and remarriage. We're going to spend a week talking about worship and we want to spend a week, we're just kind of rewinding, reminding us of the study we did on the role of women in public worship and how we value in this church grace, freedom, and giftedness. But I want to read you what the last statement is in this position on uh, divorce and remarriage. And it says this, Given the difficulties of understanding and the variety of circumstances, the community of faith is committed to love one another in redemptive ways and treat each other with respect as we promote healthy marriages, welcome the divorced, and encourage the remarried. I reached out to a few friends in this church who have been divorced, and I asked them just for some help. This is one of the hardest sermons I've had to write in, in months, maybe years. And I asked them to just share with me, what are some things you would encourage me to stay away from? What are some things you encourage me to say? And my friend Matthew Van Horn, See me in the email, and I, I was like, dude, this is, uh, I did not send you an email to ask you to do anything in front of the church, but I, I've got to ask, will you read this to the church? It's going to bless people. So I'm going to invite Matthew right now to come and to share just a few things that he shared with me. About 12 years ago, divorce ended my marriage, my career, many friendships. Divorce displaced me from my home, my job, and my church. I no longer felt belonging with my spouse, her family, or her friends. It challenged my beliefs about love, God's plan, and my own identity and self-worth. 
Divorce caused me to feel disconnected from not only my spouse, but from my own family, many friends, church, and from God. For about two full years, there was almost no life in my bones. I felt no soul in my body. I needed God and I needed the church more than ever. But of course, you can't feel welcome in a church that teaches divorce as a perpetual, unforgivable sin. My dad had to contemplate stepping down as an elder at his congregation due to my sin. That was the kind of church I was raised in. That Even if you were divorced against your will, you were an outcast whose sin brought shame on not just yourself, but your family. My failure apparently disconnected me from God and invalidated the leadership of my father. Sycamore View drew me to Memphis when I accepted that I no longer belonged anywhere else. I didn't come here to Memphis for a job or for a home. I had nothing lined up here except for the hardy spare bedroom. And I was told that I would be welcome at Sycamore View, a church that Jonathan Hardy and I had visited by mistake three years prior. There are several things and people I could point to that helped redeem my life at that time, but if I had to pick just one, it was the people of Sycamore View who welcomed me, encouraged me, counseled me, and truly accepted me. I'm so thankful to you personally, Josh. I'm so thankful to you, Kip. Y'all helped me get back on my feet spiritually. Josh, thank you for addressing this topic with your genuine care and concern. Divorced people don't need to be told that they are separated from God. We already feel that. We don't need to be told that we're going to hell. We've already been there. We need to know that God has not forsaken us. He makes all things new. We need to feel that we are loved, welcomed, and supported by the church. And we need to believe that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of Jesus. Josh, thank you for reaching out to me. I have prayed for you as you've prepared this message. And as strange as it may sound, I pray that God brings more divorced people to Sycamore View. And may they find the grace and healing here that God so graciously worked in my life. John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman at a well. In verse 16, it says this, he told her, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right when you have no husband. The fact is you've had five. And the man you have right now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. I'm going to stay on that slide just just for a moment. 
There's no mention of her becoming a widow. The assumption is she's been divorced multiple times in her life. Yet, Jesus dealt with her kindly. And Jesus acknowledged both her heartache and he acknowledged that there is hope for her future. That's what we do every time we come together. Is we acknowledge heartache in this room and we acknowledge that there is hope in our future. And this woman becomes the first evangelist in the Gospel of John. She goes back to her community and it says, here's, here's what she says. She said, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I did. Everything, Jesus knows everything you've done. Our worst moments are not the whole of our story, not when Jesus is involved. And the grace of Jesus accomplishes more than we could ever ask or imagine. Uh, last night I did my taxes. It's always such a fun two hours of sitting down and doing that. I did my taxes and I, I had this moment. And I, every year this happens to me when I do my taxes. Is I check a couple of boxes and it causes me to put my pen down and sit back in my chair. And my boxes haven't changed. I check married. The Casey and I filed jointly. And I sit back and I thank God for almost 21 years of marriage with a woman I love. And then last night I sat back and thought about, just went through almost every pew in this church thinking about people that your boxes have changed over the years. There's the boxes for divorced or separated or lost a spouse. And I sat back and just prayed and then gave God thanks that when it comes to Jesus, there's only one status that matters. And when it comes to the bread and the cup that we take every week, this is not a, this is not a meal that we come to that is based on marital status or relational status. It's only one box, and Jesus checked the box for us. That's all that counts. All that matters at this table, we're children of God. That's it. It's not based on your worst moments. It's a reminder of the worth that comes into your life because of Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus, Jesus can give you a form of worth that you cannot find anywhere else in your life. And I want to ask Sam Carr is going to come up to my right, one of our elders here. Willie Thomas is going to be in the back. And I want to ask Randy if you'd be willing to go over by that exit sign. And Joe or Stoney, I just know a couple of elders, if one of you will go to that exit sign right there. And here's what I want to invite as we go to the table today. Will we give God thanks for the status that is given to us through Jesus? And as we move here in just a moment and we take the bread and the cup, all I invite in this moment is that prayer may break out because there may be someone in the room today that you were single and what you need is just a word of blessing over you that Jesus loves you and you're like there is worth in your singleness and if you are married you may just need a leader of this church to lay a hand on your shoulder and to fight for your marriage and to pray for you even if your marriage isn't, isn't crumbling right now you may just need a leader of this church just to place a hand on you and to pray that divine power will be alive in your marriage to destroy any stronghold that may try to come into your life and if you are divorced have been divorced, 
You may need a leader just to lay a hand on you and to remind you that the only status that matters for eternity is, is your life with Jesus. He gives you worth that you cannot find anywhere else. So we open up the table for you, a table of healing, a table of reminder that this host invites you just as you are. And you have four elders around this room, and I'll be up here to my left to receive you. If there's any word of blessing, we can speak over you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And Jesus, we thank you for all that your grace has accomplished for us. Here in the next few minutes, may this be a space of healing. May prayer break out in this room as a reminder that you are greater than our worst and darkest moments in our lives. And Jesus, thank you for meeting us at this table as a friend, a savior, a Lord, a host. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.